Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I am Sarah Seidner, and this is CNN Tonight. The governor of Florida is being hit on three different fronts for sending asylum seekers from Texas to Martha's Vineyard. Today, he was hit with a class action lawsuit. He's already facing a criminal investigation. And then there are questions from the state legislature about the potential misuse of state funds. Let's start with the civil suit. That's coming from a legal group representing more than 30 of the uh, asylum seekers filing the claim against Governor Ron DeSantis and other state officials saying that the migrants experience, quote, cruelty akin to what they fled in their home country of Venezuela. The migrants group claims Florida officials manipulated them, stripped them of their dignity, deprived them of their liberty, bodily autonomy, due process and equal protection under the law. The migrants were induced by defendants to travel across state lines by fraud and misrepresentation. That is what they claim. Basically, they say DeSantis lied. And their lawyers are looking into these brochures used to entice those seeking a better life to travel under the guise that resettlement support was available to them. The governor keeps insisting the asylum seekers knew what they were signing up for. It was all voluntary and, he claimed, the humane thing to do. Those migrants were being treated horribly by Biden. They were hungry, homeless. They had no no opportunity at all. The state of Florida, it was volunteer. They were provided um, an ability to be in the, the most posh sanctuary jurisdiction maybe in the world. It's a strange thing to be sued by people who he says were informed volunteers. And that allegation of a lie takes us to the second front where DeSantis is getting hit. The sheriff of Bear County has announced an investigation into how migrants got from Texas to Martha's Vineyard. The elected sheriff, who is a Democrat, told reporters that the migrants who took the flights were exploited and, in his words, hoodwinked. What I'm trying to determine right now is, was the law broken here in Texas, namely in Bear County, where I'm the sheriff? At this point, I have not said, and nor will I say, that, I'm, that I've got the governor under, under investigation. Uh, but I, I do, from what we're hearing, people that may have been associated with him or may, may have been employed by him or contracted by him or his folks uh, may have broken the law here in Bear County. So there's an investigation in Texas, but there are big questions in Florida as well. That's front number three. Did DeSantis misuse state funds for this? Well, here is a state budget language. $12 million was appropriated to Florida's Transportation Department to facilitate the transport of, quote, unauthorized aliens from this state consistent with federal law. Pay close attention to that highlighted part that you see there in yellow. Unauthorized aliens and from this state, meaning Florida, The men and women and children aren't unauthorized aliens. They are legal asylum seekers. And this state, which would be, of course, Florida, is not Texas. To be clear, there is a crisis at the border. The White House admits as much. And there is a new report out showing more than two million arrests at the border over the last 11 months. That is a record. So there is a problem. But 
it is highly problematic how some of these red state governors are going about solving it. And that is a question we wanted to get into now. I'm joined now by Raul Reyes, an immigration lawyer, also CNN senior political analyst John Avalon, and former chief of staff to the Homeland Security Secretary under then-President Trump, Miles Taylor. Miles, I want to start with you. With this kind of political gamemanship with people who are scared, who are desperate, who are legally in the country because they are seeking asylum, did the Trump administration ever think of doing something like this? And if not, what do you think about these two Republicans who have decided that that's what they're going to do, particularly DeSantis, who went into another state and sent people from another state somewhere that they say they had no idea where they were going. Yeah, well, Sarah, not only did the Trump administration think about something like this, I think they're the progenitors of the concept. This is a zombie Trump administration policy that had died and has now come back to life. And these two governors have brought it back to life. And I'll tell you exactly when this happened. In January and February of 2019, uh, Donald Trump directed us to go and take immigrants from the border and, quote, bus and dump them into Democratic cities and blue states. He wanted us to take immigrants from the border, take them into blue states and cities and put them in there, but he was much more specific. He wanted us to identify the murderers, the rapists, and the criminals, and in particular, make sure we did not incarcerate them and we put them in those cities. Okay, it doesn't take a lawyer or a genius to recognize this would likely be very illegal to do, but put aside the murders and the rapists and the criminals, could you take people from the border and just dump them into blue states? We went and we asked the lawyers, and they told us, no, the federal government cannot do that. Congress has not authorized that. And now look, these governors are walking into the same problem that we told the White House was illegal and they couldn't do, and now they're trying to do the same thing. So why do you think they are taking this course, and why is it that this kind of cruelty is coming from one particular party, the Republicans right now. This is cruelty to those who are seeking asylum in this country, something that we are quite proud of as a country or have been. Yeah, I mean, look, you can you can disagree on immigration, and I still think people should be proud of the fact that two million people want so badly to come into this country that they're going to follow such a dangerous route to get into it. We should be proud that people want to be here, but this is not the way to treat them once they get here. Why are they doing it? I think the answer is simple. It's the same reason Donald Trump wanted to do it. He didn't want to do it because it was going to solve the crisis at the border to fly people to Martha's Vineyard. He did it. He wanted to do it because of politics. These two governors as I warned, are carrying forward the torch of Trumpism, but they're actually doing more than carrying the torch forward. They are self-immolating with that torch to prove a political point and to fundraise. That's an extra layer, in my opinion, of grotesqueness when it comes to public policy. It seems to be working with the base, and we'll get back to that in a minute. Um, Raul, legally, what is the remedy for a governor who may be exceeding his authority in terms of immigration? Uh, and he's you know, going into a different state, sending you know, asylum seekers into a yet a different state. I mean, what is the legal remedy here for him? Uh- for the governor or for the administration? For the administration. For the well, I, I think these lawsuits that we're seeing that we're seeing now are just the beginning because it is established law in the Supreme Court in the Constitution that the states do not have jurisdiction over immigration. You know that is a federal matter. I think the only reason we haven't seen swifter action uh, on the on these matters from the Biden administration is because they don't want to give air to this issue right now. Because for the GOP politically. 
immigration is a great issue because it keeps people from talking about the assault on uh, reproductive rights and abortion. And it, uh, it keeps people from talking about DeSantis's moves against LGBTQ people in Florida. But right now, I mean, there's no, there is no question that basically what these governors are doing or attempting to do is deporting people from their state to another state. Now, look, true, governors can move uh, migrants around the country and past administrations have done that in coordination and with partnership with the federal government. What they cannot do is just take a targeted group of people, transport them allegedly through fraudulent or deceptive means. There is a commercial gain involved to the contractors who flew them there. Right there, you have the elements of a case of trafficking. That's similar to the case that the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights is bringing. And one of the things that DeSantis is saying now, and he's said it a few times today, is that these migrants agreed to the transfers, that it was voluntary. But in cases of trafficking, for, uh, uh, your your acceptance, your your yeah. willingness, your consent is not a defense, right? It, because it, you're it, under pressure, right? You, and because you, you, you did not scared. have full knowledge of the facts, mm. so that is not a defense to to these to these allegations, to these these, these uh, improper uses of his authority. I'm curious, John, have we ever seen anything like this before, where you're seeing governors? sending people from one state to the next without the federal government having any idea where they're going? Well, well look, I mean, first of all, I, I do think part of it is is an effort to roll back issues that had be, been treated as federal issues within living memory and, and, and to re- restore power to the states. That's part of the ideological project beyond the troll politics of this. The problem is when your politics are trying to out-troll the other guy, you can run into real legal consequences when you're a sitting governor. You ask about precedent. Um, look, one president was highlighted by the JFK Library uh, a, a few days ago in a tweet where they simply posted an article uh, about these reverse, reverse freedom rides that were put in place not by governors, but by the white citizens' councils in the early 1960s, where uh, black families were being put on buses by these groups and sent north to Hyannisport, where the Kennedys lived, mm. uh, to the towns where different members of the Justice Department's senior leadership, particularly on civil rights, lived, uh, with the attitude that you'll be far, far more welcoming and accommodating of these families, uh, mocking the idea of trying to advance equal rights. Um, and, and, and look, I, that isn't presumably, I think almost certainly, an unintentional echo. The question is, what is up with the muscle memory? You know, the reason you, you pay attention, you know, Mark Twain always said, you know, history doesn't repeat, but sometimes it rhymes. What's useful is to listen to the rhythm, listen to the rhymes. And that can help us understand where we are in the larger moral debates. Sir, I think it's important that you drew the distinction in the beginning that these migrants, they have, they are pursuing uh, lawful claims for asylum. So they are not, quote unquote, illegal immigrants, like uh, as the GOP likes to present this issue to their base. But one thing that also gets lost in this debate about uh, the, bo- the border crisis, which in my view is a crisis of our political leadership, it's a crisis of resources, is the question of how many asylum seekers is too much. How many will we accept? And the answer is, we we look to Congress. The answer is, we don't have a limit on that. Even though we have limits on refugees, we have limits on work visas, we have limits on the diversity visa, that's because our lawmakers, they knew that we cannot foresee when there's going to be a humanitarian crisis in in, in a different country, that we can't foresee some type of uh, conflict like we're seeing in the Ukraine. In Ukraine. So in in this case, that's one thing that gets lost, this whole idea that there's too many asylum seekers. And it's racialized because this would never happen. This is a racialized concept occurring 
wondering, Hispanic heritage well, well, month, because this would not let, happen. Let's, let's, let's pump, it, this let's, would not happen let's, with let's Ukraine refugees. on that particular allegation. But I think the larger point is, and here's where I think DeSant gets, gets into a little bit of political double jeopardy, is because these are overwhelmingly Venezuelan immigrants seeking right. asylum from the Maduro regime, right. uh, which most you know, conservatives have been criticizing rightly for decades yeah. since Chavez first took power. They're also, the, the reason the border is being overwhelmed right now is Venezuelan, Cuban, uh, and Nicaraguan asylum seekers, um, which are all regimes that are, are, are increasing the pressure on the border. We should not be blasé about two million people crossing the border and being apprehended. The border is not as secure as it should be. But the best American traditions have always been about welcoming refugees mm-hmm. and political asylum seekers, particularly if you're a conservative from Florida running for re-election right now with regard to leftist regimes that are causing havoc in our hemisphere. That is a really good point, John. And we're going to get back to talking about this because it is a complicated <laughs> issue um, and an emotional one and one that we should be discussing in this country. Raul Reyes, thank you so much, John and Miles. Stick around. We're about to talk to a former congressman uh, who is a Republican from Texas. Will Hurd thinks leaders across the country are missing an important opportunity to cooperate. And too many truly don't understand the depths of the problem at the border. His insights are coming up next. More than two million people were apprehended crossing the southern U.S. border in the last year. This is the first time we've ever seen numbers that high. But the 50 people sent to Martha's Vineyard or the thousands sent to New York, Chicago or D.C. only compound the immigration court backlog of more than 1.8 million cases. Yet the immigration stunt did earn Ron DeSantis a standing ovation by Republican voters. It should be noted the Republicans cheering happened to live in Kansas. So let's talk with the Republican who actually is in Texas, former Congressman Will Hurd. I'd like to welcome you. Thanks for coming. It's a pleasure to be on, Sarah. Can I ask you about this latest stunt by uh, mm-hmm. Governor DeSantis? In your estimation, isn't this cruelty instead of working on solutions, real solutions? Well, if, if you're going to describe this as cruelty, then having 14,000 people living under a bridge last year in Del Rio, Texas, is also cruelty. Then it's also cruelty to have uh, detention facilities in places like El Paso increase by 3x than what their, their capacity is. Uh, that's cruelty a- as well. Um, the reality is I wish both sides of, of this argument would be working together. I, I wish... Democratic mayors in Chicago and New York and Democratic governors would say, hey, we know that this is a difficult for places like Texas. We know that philanthropic organizations and places along the border um, have reached their capacity and can't uh, deal with this crisis. Here's the number of people that we can help a week. Send them to this location. Um, Instead of just sending people, I wish the governors uh, would be telling folks in advance, hey, we need this help. Are you willing to help us? I think this is an opportunity um, for for us to be working together across the country on something that truly is a crisis. The previous panel talked about the two million people um, that have been apprehended. That's an astronomical number. And the number of people that are going through the immigration system. And, and we have to be reminded that all the, yes, it, it, you can apply for asylum. Uh, we should treat people with respect and dignity that are applying for asylum. But not everybody is going to be granted asylum. When you look over the last 20 years, 
the number of people that actually get granted asylum is around a little bit north of, of 20 percent. Um, that's why they're waiting to hear this this immigration uh, going to an immigration hearing in order to be granted asylum. Uh, we need to be you know we talk about the real human smugglers are the ones that are moving millions of people through Central America up through Mexico through our, our southern border. Why are we not dismantling those networks? Uh, we have the information on on the people. We have phone numbers. You know, it's hard to move a th a millions of people. Uh, we we can we can dismantle these these networks. We should be focusing on that, and then we should also be focusing on focusing on the root causes that's causing people to leave. And so this is frustrating. I represented 29 counties, um, 820 miles of the border when when I was in Congress, and these communities are taxed. They need help, and I wish we were focusing more on that conversation uh, because this is not good. We're not going to see an end in sight because I think the wrong policies are in place. You talked about some of the potential solutions. Um, the president right now is President Joe Biden. Um, mm -hmm. You listed some things that you thought that he could do. Um, can you give us a sense of what you think that the Biden administration can do uh, to try and deal with this issue? Because Everyone now agrees there is a crisis sure. at the border. There are, you know, two million people this year that have ended up uh, on that border. And as yeah. you mentioned, the living conditions for people once they get there are terrible. They're, they're very, very difficult. So what are some but, things that you've listed that you think the Biden administration it, can do? It, it, it's, it's, I appreciate you bringing that because it's heartbreaking seeing what some of uh, these, these folks are having to deal with. And not only just them, but Border Patrol uh, having to execute on things. And, and, and look, uh, you shouldn't, uh, I, I'm, not, I'm not criticizing Border Patrol. They're executing on flawed policy, flawed policies, policies from Donald Trump, flawed policies uh, from Joe Biden. Here's one thing, streamline legal immigration at a time when every industry needs workers. And the fact that most of these individuals that are coming now are trying to seek a better life. Um, I, w I can't criticize them for that. I would probably be doing the same thing. But let's have the legal process in place. The difficulty in doing that, you know, President Biden can't get support from the left wing of his party to streamline guest worker visas because they don't want to see that increase. But let um, me let me jump in here, mm -hmm. uh, uh, mm -hmm. former Congressman Hurd, sure. because that 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 part may be true. But there was also 15 Republican attorney ge attorneys general who went to court to block the Biden administration from from streamlining, for example, the asylum process. And so it's not just one side of the aisle that is stopping some of this. You also had Biden's 2023 budget, uh, which asked Congress for sure. money to hire more uh, Border Patrol agents. And the administration is offering signing bo bonuses to get more Border Control agents because there more are needed, according to the administration. Um, some of these things have been blocked also by Republicans who say they want a solution. Mm -hmm. Well, well, uh, that, that, that legislation you're talking about increasing Border Patrol, that passed the House. Um, we'll see what happens um, in, in the Senate. I, I can't disagree with giving uh, uh, more, uh, having, hiring more Border Patrol agents. My first piece of legislation I signed into law was increasing uh, the pay of, of Border Patrol agents. So, yes, that's something um, that, that should be done. Uh, you know, th th so so we, we also need to be addressing some of these issues in, in Central and in, in South America. Why have we not treated this as 
as a national intelligence priority? Why have we not spent the resources of the CIA, of the NSA, in focusing on this issue and working with our partners in these regions who are willing to, to work with us on that? So you have to address uh, that end as well. And, and then finally, why do we not have a national security economic plan uh, for places? And, and, and a lot of times we focus on the Northern Triangle, Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras. That has historically uh, been the location that has driven um, a, a lot of the folks coming into our country illegally. That's not necessarily the case right now. The people are coming from 151 different locations. But we have to address those root causes uh, why people are, are, are fleeing. And then we also got to remember asylum. You have to be a member of protected class and show that you're being persecuted for being part of that protected class. Um, coming and wanting to have a better job is not a criteria for, for being an asylum seeker. Uh, this is one of the reasons why the number of people that actually get granted asylum are, are so low. So if we address those root causes there, it's a fraction of the cost than, than trying to, to do it here. So there's a number of areas that we can focus on, but unfortunately, and this is one of the most frustrating things um, about this issue of immigration that I saw when I was in Congress. Um, there's a lot of people in both parties that would rather use this as a political bludgeon against each other in elections rather than solving, solving the problems. But I can tell you this, uh, folks that live along the border and have been dealing with this crisis for the last three years, and I, and I include uh, the last year of, of the Trump administration is when this border cr crisis really started and it ballooned in these two years of the Biden administration. Uh, the folks that live along the border are frustrated, they're tired, and they feel like nobody has their backs. All right. Well heard. Thank you so much for joining us and giving us your insights ahead. Something that doesn't get much attention, unreported deaths in America's prisons and jails. I didn't need to go to the hospital. I'm going to die in here. I'm doing everything I can to get you out. That is someone in prison talking to his mother. He ends up dying, finding about out about the disturbing investigation that the Senate is doing. That's coming up. And we have the chair of the subcommittee, Senator John Ossoff, coming up next to talk about it. A new failure within America's criminal justice system. A new Senate report found that in 2021, the Justice Department failed to record the deaths of nearly 1,000 inmates in state prisons and local jails. Incarceration shouldn't be a death sentence, nor should waiting to go to court. Yet this is the reality for too many, including Matthew Laughlin, a pretrial detainee who was never convicted of a crime and denied medical treatment despite repeated requests. At a hearing today, his mother shared audio of her final call with his, her son. It is disturbing, but important to listen. I need to go to the hospital. I'm going to in here. I know you are, Matthew. I'm doing everything I can to get you out and so I can see you. Hello? Yeah. They're doing everything they can. There are 15 seconds remaining. I've been coughing up blood. My feet are swollen. It hurts. I, I, oh. I know, Matthew. I know what is wrong with you. I told you this would happen. I love you, Matthew. They're going to cut us I off. I love you, too. <laughs> I'm going to die in here. 
and he did eventually die in there. Joining me now is the chairman of that hearing, Georgia Democratic Senator John Ossoff. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you for having me. And I think it's important for all of us to imagine that a loved one is arrested, in this case, in the case of Mr. Laughlin, on a nonviolent charge, winds up in a county jail, is denied the medical treatment that they need, and never comes out. Thousands of Americans die every year in custody, whether in local jails, state prisons, or federal prisons. There is an ongoing humanitarian crisis in custodial facilities across the United States. I led a 10-month bipartisan investigation of federal oversight of deaths in custody. And what we found is shocking. As you noted, nearly 1,000 deaths across the country that the Department of Justice failed to identify at all. And of those deaths that DOJ did identify, nearly a full third, they didn't have any details about the circumstances of death, 70% of them were incomplete. And what that means is that policymakers, whether at the Department of Justice or in the Congress, lack the information we need about who is dying, where they're dying, and why they're dying to take action that can save lives. When you look at this situation, the first thing I want to ask you is, what can you do about this particular issue? It is heart-wrenching seeing a mother react like that to the loss of her son, hearing his last words, but that is just one of what you said was a thousand that have been found that are sort of unexplained um, as to why they died. What can be done about it to change this? Well, it was nearly a thousand uncounted deaths last year alone. And as for how we pursue change, change begins with the truth. Change begins with the facts. I chair the Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations. It's the preeminent investigative body in the United States Congress. That's why I led this 10-month bipartisan investigation. This has nothing to do with politics, by the way, nothing to do with partisan politics. Democratic and Republican staff, Democratic and Republican members of this subcommittee have been working together to understand why there are these shocking gaps in federal oversight so that we can help the executive branch to fix these grievous mistakes and, if necessary, legislate to fix these mistakes. And the reason that we needed to hear from the family members today of those who have died is because this isn't about numbers. This is not about statistics. This is about human lives. This is about human lives cut short, in many cases, preventably. Getting charged with a crime or convicted is not meant to be a death sentence. It's a moral disgrace what's happening in jails and prisons across the country. It's preventable, and I believe that we have to take action. That's why I've led this investigation to get the facts. Senator Ossoff, I'm curious how you square this issue right now, because as you know, people are politics, and politics is playing in everything right now. Uh, We are a very divided nation, and there is justice in prison reform that has been asked for for, for, on on actually both sides of the aisle, but um, in many parts of this country, there is concern about reform while crime is spiking, and not just crime, but things like murders, violent crime spiking. How do you square the two? 
Well, there's no conflict here. And I believe that's why I've been successful building bipartisan support in the Senate for investigations of corruption, abuse, and misconduct in the prison system. And violent crime is a huge issue in the United States today. And we need a strong public safety policy to keep our communities safe. That doesn't mean that we look away when people are preventably dying by the thousands in jails and prisons across the country. Senator Ossoff, I do want to talk to you a little bit about politics, uh, since you are also a politician. Um, And we have been listening to Biden, and we heard something that I think a lot of people took a deep breath and were a little shocked over, uh, because he didn't actually say to his interviewer that he was firmly going to run for the presidency again in 2024. What do you make of that? Do you expect him to run? That's a decision for the president and for the first lady. It's not for me to say. Uh, And what I can tell you is this. I want to work with the president, with the attorney general, to address the issues that we identified in the course of this investigation. Because people are dying as we speak in prisons and jails across the country. The Department of Justice is failing to count them, is failing to identify the causes of death. There needs to be accountability for those failures, and there needs to be change so that transparency can be restored. Senator Ossoff, do you think that President Biden should run in 2024, in your opinion, as a voter and a senator? Again, that's a question for the president and for the first lady. Uh, I'm not going to give him advice, uh, but I'm ready to work with him, continue working with him, Uh, to advance the public interest and the interests of the state of Georgia. Senator Ossoff, thank you so much for coming on and highlighting a really important issue. Coming up, the special master in the Donald Trump Mar-a-Lago documents case. The man, recommended by Trump's legal team, gives the Trump side an ultimatum when CNN Tonight returns. Former President Donald Trump has spent weeks arguing arguing that he declassified the documents seized at Mar-a-Lago. But his legal team has not backed up that claim in court. And today, the special master reviewing the documents told Team Trump it's time to put up or shut up, saying that if they can't, quote, advance any claim of declassification, that's the end of it. Adding, quote, my view of it is you can't have your cake and eat it. Miles Taylor is back with me along with CNN's senior legal analyst, Ellie Honig, and CNN's political commentator, S.E. Cup. I'm starting with you, Ellie. The special master is calling the Trump team's bluff, it appears at this point, on the president's claim that, hey, it was fine for me to have these documents at Mar-a-Lago because I declassified them. Explain why this is so significant, what the judge has said. Well, because Donald Trump's team has been dancing this very delicate back and forth dance where the client, Donald Trump, is out there in public loudly proclaiming, good thing I declassified everything. And if you notice in all the legal filings, Trump's lawyers are assiduously avoiding saying just that. And now the judge is saying, 
I need your position. And by the way, this happens. I mean, this is what good judges do. Judge Deary has been a trial judge in Brooklyn for 36 years. He knows how to move things along. He knows how to get past the foot dragging. And now they've got to make a decision. Are they going to realistically argue? And remember, lawyers have an ethical duty. You cannot lie to a court. Are they going to really go in there and argue that Donald Trump declassified or not? I think, look, who are we kidding? I mean, there's no evidence that he declassified. So I think they have to try to drop that issue. I think it's the only move they're going to be left with. As I'm, I want to ask this question because it, is it a problematic thing that the judiciary branch is saying they will then, if they have to, determine what is and what is not classified documents? Uh, yeah, but I think also Team Trump wants to tie this up in sort of legalese, let it go and go and go. Um, they want that question addressed later. That's why they're going to the judge and saying, hold off, hold off on, 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 on that part of it. And let's get to some, some other part. But I think what we learned from today's, um, hearing was just how little hand they have to Ellie's point. I think they have to drop the classification thing. And I think they know it um, because they're throwing everything else at it. You know, they're attacking the National Archives, referencing a 20-year-old scandal involving Sandy Berger. I mean, they're going after all kinds of stuff because I think they know it's inevitable that they're not going to get to the classification stuff. They're even asking, weirdly, to declassify the papers so that they can know what's in them, right. which is an admission that they're classified. So that they can, well, we, we were just talking about this earlier. <laughs> it's kind of like you're getting ready to take a test and you say to the teacher, like, but could I take a peek at the answers first? Because <laughs> yeah. they know they don't have a, declassify, right. a declassification order or probably don't. And they want to know how they can shape one and what the documents are. That's scary in and of itself. But I mean, to your point, mm. it's not just like they're shooting themselves in the foot with Deary. This is a judge who it's, they might as well cut the whole leg off because this is a man who has spent a lot of his career in the most classified corners of the judiciary. He's yeah. the former head, one of the former judges on the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, and they deal with exceptionally significant cases. So he's not taking any of these excuses and he from doesn't be, He doesn't want to be the star of this show. What he said today was, if you can't prove with, you know, prima facie documents that these are, un that you declassified them, I'm done. I'm basic. My job here is basically done. So I don't think he wants, you know, the spotlight. He doesn't want a grandstand. I think he really wants to limit narrowly his part of this and, you know, kind of dispatch with it and see where else it could go. Do, do you think the Trump folks, Trump camp, was surprised by this uh, because they specifically wanted this specific judge. I, I genuinely think they're surprised at anything that happens two moves down the chessboard. And, and I, I don't really say that entirely facetiously because Trump, he's the client. His way of thinking is very, very short term. Okay. And he's going to keep looking at the short term. I think one of the things that people aren't talking about, though, that's a big concern in the background, if you think about what's happening in the national security community right now, the people in the intelligence community who are charged with assessing the blowback of these documents, the threats to spies, to our operatives overseas, are literally sitting on their hands because they're not allowed to continue that review of the significance of the blowback. That's a problem here. So it may look like political games and legal games, but there could be potentially real operatives overseas today and people who are under threat because we don't know what the documents are, what the implications are, and DOJ had to stop in that review. Ellie, do you think that this sort of delay tactic that the Trump team is using is 
in some ways working against the DOJ. I do. I do. Look, DOJ is winning on the merits. They're winning on the papers. I think most lawyers read the papers and say DOJ has the better of the argument here, the common sense, the little case law that we do have on executive privilege. And by the way, be very skeptical of any blanket pronouncements of what, about what executive privilege is or is not. It's often applied on a document-by-document basis. But delay, I mean, this is nothing new. This is Donald Trump's strategy, and it often works for him. Dating back to Mueller, you name it, delay, all the subpoenas that have come in, and a lot of times it works. And let's assess where we are. The search of Mar-a-Lago was six-plus weeks ago. The special master has not seen one piece of paper. We are now in an appeal that is going to go up to the 11th Circuit. Whoever loses that is then going to ask the Second Circuit for what we call en banc review, meaning the whole circuit hears it. Whoever loses that is then going to try to get it up to the Supreme Court. I mean, if DOJ was really focused on being expeditious here, when they lost the special master ruling, they would have said, we hate this ruling, we disagree with it, but fine. Let's get it over with. 500 documents a day go to the special master. We'll be done in three weeks. DOJ is fighting for the principle here. Sometimes as DOJ, you have to do that. All I want for Christmas is for this to be done. Will it be done? <laughs> By Christmas? No. <sighs> well, Sorry. Well, Sorry, Miles. Well. Next, next Christmas, but 2023. The next crisis will come, and then that will take over the news cycle. I mean, it is a plan or a ploy being used by, uh, it, it appears, the, the Trump Indeed. team. Yeah. Um, Ellie, Miles, Essie. Thank you so much. Thanks, uh, coming up, a dangerous and almost unbelievable social media stunt. But it's real enough that the FDA actually had to issue this warning. Don't cook chicken in NyQuil. That's a real warning. And I'll tell you why coming up next. Tonight, a new warning from the FDA about social media, a trend I don't think many of us could ever predict it. People on TikTok cooking chicken in NyQuil. Yes, NyQuil, the cold medicine. It's all part of a new social media challenge where users are encouraged to post videos like the one that you're seeing next to me. That just looks nasty. John Avalon and Essie Cup are back with me, along with a primary care pediatrician at Columbia University, uh, Irving Medical Center, Dr. Edith Brancho Sanchez. All right, doctor, I'm going to start with you. Now, clearly, even just looking at it, we know this is not a good idea. And they're, they're calling it the Sleepy Chicken Challenge. But <laughs> Avalon, do not start. But... Can you just explain seriously how dangerous this can be, um, especially for teens, tweens who tend to have a good time and jump on some of these challenges? Yeah, I mean, listen, sometimes I I can't believe we're talking about these things and we have to talk about these challenges, but this can be extremely dangerous. We're talking about a medicine that you are concentrating by cooking it, right? So we're talking about ingredients that are now going to be very, very concentrated. And we're talking about ingredients that can be dangerous on their own and together. So we're talking about potential overdoses. And even if you don't eat the chicken, because as you showed and as you mentioned, it looks nasty, quite frankly, right? Um, Even if you don't cook the chicken, the vapors can be incredibly dangerous if you inhale them, right? You can have some lung irritation as well as other issues. So, so we're talking about something that is potentially very, very dangerous and should be taken seriously. Essie, I want to ask you about this because okay. while we're all wiggling a little because <laughs> yeah. you can't help it, um, there is a serious side to this. And yeah. that is these challenges. We've had the cinnamon challenge, which is bad for your lungs. There was the Tide Pod, Pod challenge, yeah. right? Yeah. You, you knew that one oh, yeah. right off the I'm bat. TikTok. Mm-hmm. And now you've got this sleepy chicken challenge, yeah. which sounds really funny, but toxins, people can actually overdose and have died from some of these challenges. How do you deal with this 
with children. Like, yeah. how do you talk them off of doing some of these things that seem fun and they get likes when they do it? That part's really tough um, because it's not just, I mean, kids have done these fads for decades, right. you know, stuffing themselves into phone booths in the 50s and swallowing goldfish. And But the problem now is it's also performative. Yeah. And to do it publicly and then get the attention and the likes is part of that. The good news is they are showing you what they're doing. And as much as I hate the idea of my seven-year-old one day in the deep future being on social media, you better believe I will stalk every account he has so that I can find out what the kids are doing. So you don't really have an excuse as a parent today to not be aware of this stuff and then have the conversation with your kid about these dumbass stunts that could actually kill them or at the very least land them in the hospital. That's on parents. We're not completely helpless in this situation. John, when you look at all these trends, I mean, adults have done some pretty stupid stuff too. Mm-hmm. Um, and But this is a real serious issue. When it I comes mean, to all I mean these we're talking things. about NyQuil chicken. It's hard for yeah. me to say it's very serious. Yeah. It's seriously stupid. Yeah. It could kill people. It's a good advertisement for why people shouldn't give in to peer pressure, particularly mm-hmm. over social media. Example number one bajillion. And I love that Essie went back to swallowing goldfish and, you know, moral panics about stuffing people into phone booths. But this really is like one of these head smacking, like, this is why we can't have nice things. Yeah. I like, mean- <laughs> what the hell are people doing where you need NyQuil chicken to amuse yourself? Can you find a deeper sense of purpose or amusement? But the larger issue is that social media has a deep impact, not just on kids. We can't put this all on young people. We adults also are affected by social media and some of the things that we say and do. So how do you deal with that? How how would you talk to a parent about that? I mean, listen, I think we have to prepare for the time when they come across these things, right? It's not if, if they come across these things, it's it's when Mm -hmm. they come across them, right? So so what are you going to do, right, when you see this? How are we going to have this conversation? How are you going to think about it? Who are you going to talk to? So let's say you're going to stop, right? You're going to come across this thing, you're going to stop, and you're going to say, what's going to happen if Mm -hmm. I partake in this, right? And I want, I really encourage parents at home to have these conversations with their kids, right? When you come across this, stop. What's going to happen if I take part in this, am I going to get hurt? Is somebody else going to get hurt, right? Do they have skills that I don't have? Because some of these stunts are like, you know, people that are trained professionals doing crazy things that sound like a good idea. But if you try to do them, you will get hurt, right? It's like, don't touch the stove type of thing. That's right. Dr. Rondo Sanchez, Essie Cup, and John Avalon, thank you so much. I apologize for bringing you on to talk about (laughs) Sleepy Chicken. Thank you. Thank you so much for hanging out. I'll be back tomorrow night. Don Lemon tonight starts right now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.